Welcome to Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live on stage and without notes. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. On this podcast, our featured storytellers pack some atomic power in our flagship season, Brave the Elements. On February 26, 2019, at Jump in downtown Boise, these storytellers got into their element with stories inspired by the theme, Copper plus Zinc equals Brass. And now, our featured storytellers, Irene Dealey, Diane Dalton, and John Much. It's Elemental. It's story time. Irene Dealey! I slumped to the steel, cold, hard stool in my welding studio, and my cell phone slipped out of my hand onto the zinc and copper stained floor. It was a few days after September 11th, 2001, and I had just made four phone calls to every branch of the military service. Their response was all the same. We appreciate your enthusiasm, ma'am, but we just don't have a program for 50-year-old grandmothers. And I thought, ah, what can a mother do? What can a mother do? So I grabbed a hunk of clay, and I began forming it. And my mind wandered off to the Statue of Liberty standing on Bedloe's Island. She was a 115-year-old mother. She wouldn't just stand there. So I started sculpting an image of the Statue of Liberty. No, she wouldn't just stand there. She would move. She would do something to protect the 15 million children that she had invited through Ellis Island. And my eyes started scanning around my studio, and it fell on the binding of a book, Bruce Lee. Yeah, that's what, that's what a mother would do. Statue of Liberty was hiding a beautiful, strong, brassy leg under her copper robes. She would kick her leg out right into the face of, of the enemy who was, who was threatening the freedom for her children. So I began fashioning my liberty with uh, Bruce Lee's signature kickbox move. Well, I, as, I be, as I was finishing up the details, I, my mind started recalling some heroes before me, like the signers of the uh, Declaration of Independence who wrote, who pledged their their lands, their fortune, and their sacred honor so that people could be free. And and then, what about Todd Beamer, who just a few days ago, he rallied his fellow passengers on Flight 93, and he said, let's roll, and he rushed the, the hijackers and steered his plane into an empty field instead of the target that the terrorists had in mind, where many more would be killed. Of course, several hundred were killed on that flight. But his bravery led to the freedom for others. 
So I look back at my, my Statue of Liberty with this, with this brassy leg kicking out, and I said, Liberty, let's roll. So I took that 18-inch model, took her to the foundry, and had her cast in bronze. But I knew right from the very beginning that she needed to be a heroic scale eight feet tall. In my mind, I could only see this heroic woman rolling out across the United States heading toward the Statue of Liberty. And I saw her sailing on a barge just to communicate, hey, guys, we're free. We need to, we need to move with our freedom. We need to do something. <laughs> but it took seven years. And, and it finally, it was July 4th, 2008, when Liberty Let's Roll was unveiled at Hawk Stadium. There was a couple thousand people in the stand. She was unveiled. She was pulled out there with a 38-foot RV completely wrapped in the a design of the skyline of, the New York, of New York City and then emblazoned on the back of the RV facing right out toward Liberty were the words of Henry David Thoreau, which said, when one advances confidently in the direction of his dreams and endeavors to live the life he has imagined, he will meet with success. Well, unbeknownst to the people in the stands who are now cheering for liberty, and I had announced to them, I'm going to New York, I'm selling liberty around her big sister. They didn't know I had been trying to find a way to get, make that happen for several months. I couldn't get permits. Um, a barge, to rent a barge was gonna be $50,000 an hour. There was no way, every door was slammed shut. But I announced to them, I'm on my way. So the next day, off we went with this, with this brazen woman following behind this crazy RV. And the first stop was Tombstone, Arizona. Well, it wasn't the first stop, but, but this is the, one of the memorable ones. Tombstone, Arizona, and we parked on a side street. And as I got off the RV, I heard someone yell, there she is, and around the corner comes a, a crowd of people. Half of them had six shooters strapped to their thighs. There she is, and they all came rushing, jumping up on the trailer, taking pictures, offering us a cold beer. It was like oh, an old Western hoedown suddenly around Liberty. And I thought, wow, what's going on? And people started gathering from all over Tombstone. It had created quite a, a splash. Well, to break up the revelry, suddenly a sheriff appeared, tin badge on his, on his shirt, and he was waving a flyer. He said, we've got people on Main Street that are accusing you of disturbing the peace and making an image of a beloved icon of freedom in, in a sacrilegious pose. So I followed the sheriff onto Main Street, Big Nose Kate Saloon, 
And inside was the owner. He was rallying up his patrons. They were ready. They were starting a demonstration. They were going to run Liberty out on a rail. <laughs> so I quickly, I, I showed the sheriff my brochure, and, and I gave him a, a, a quick uh, inspiration behind Liberty. And then he addressed the saloon and said, Ladies and gentlemen, cease and desist. And then he leaned over to me and he said, don't worry about old Cal. He's, he's just sore that your Lady Liberty's leg is much more attractive than his dusty old saloon. So we headed out of town, but I was just troubled. I thought, this is not what I had in mind for Liberty. On one hand, it was like she was the cause of just drunken revelry. And on the other hand, people were in interpreting her as a sacrilege to this beautiful icon. But, and I thought, oh gosh, maybe I need to turn back. But I'd already stated in front of 2,000 people that I was heading to, to New York City, so I kept on rolling. Well, the next stop was in San Antonio. Uh, we were invited to set up in front of a military hospi hospital at Fort Sam. And um, we were right at the entrance to the hospital, and I noticed uh, a soldier coming along in a wheelchair and his, his head, he was turned away from Liberty. And before he went in, I noticed that he was a double amputee above the knee. And he went inside and I thought, oh gosh, what have I done? Have I just completely been so insensitive to where I'm at? Here I've got this Statue of Liberty exposing her leg in front of a hospital where there's men inside that don't even have legs. And I was, I was starting to think, I, I was making plans to just leave. But then this soldier came back out. This time he caught my attention and he gave me a wink. And then he lifted him, his torso up off the wheelchair and he kicked his stump high into the air. He was saluting, Liberty, let's roll. So that gave me courage to keep on going, even though we still had no permits, no way of knowing how in the heck I was going to sell this crazy sculpture around the Statue of Liberty. Well, we came up into Pennsylvania. And we stopped at uh, the Flight 93 memorial site. Out in the field, there was still a big, ugly gash. Seven years later, after Todd Beamer and his passengers had crashed into it and died, there was a, a big temporary uh, wall where people could fix uh, memorials in remembrance to those who had lost their lives. And so I had grabbed a t-shirt that we had screen printed this image of liberty and was tying it onto this memorial wall. And as I turned around to leave, I saw a woman coming toward me. She had this crazy high uh, platinum blonde hairdo. And she was beautifully dressed. The sun was setting, and it was just lighting up this pompadour hairdo like a halo 
She's, and she headed, got closer, and suddenly she just fell down on her knees. And I thought, oh, you know, she's tripped and falling. Can I help you? And I reached my hand down, and suddenly she, still on her knees, she looked up at me with piercing blue eyes, with great emotion. She said, you're an angel. Don't stop what you're doing. Well, I left that memorial site troubled more than ever. I felt sick to my stomach. What in the world? So now Liberty is, is making people address me like I'm an angel and kneeling? I thought, this can't be. But now I was, I was so close to New York, I, I honestly wanted to turn back. I was ashamed at what I had created, but I kept on going. Um, two days before we arrived at the New York state line, I received a phone call. Hello, this is Frank from the National Park Service on Bedloe Island. I understand you have a sculpture that you want to sell around the Statue of Liberty. I'm here to make that happen. I thought this has got to be some kind of a hoax. So I played along with his joke. Okay, yeah, sure. Well, now, why in the world would you want to do such a crazy thing like that? Lady, this is not a joke. You love our liberty, and we love yours. He commenced to give me elaborate details on how to get onto Ellis Island, get to the, the dock where he said he was going to have a forklift, a barge, a service boat to pull us out into the bay, and a, a time and a day to meet us. I, I still felt like this was too good to be true, but I hung up and thought, oh, well, I'm headed that way. So now we're approaching the bridge and tunnel onto Manhattan. We were a day early before this supposed meeting with Frank. And, and I thought, well, I mean, we're this far. I don't have the permits. Um, the worst they could do is tell me to turn around, right? So we headed across the bridge. We got to the entrance to the tunnel where there was a toll booth. The tunnel was going to empty us out onto Manhattan. The toll booth operator came out. She looked up and down the Liberty rig, walked back to the end, checked out Liberty Let's Roll, came back up. I was getting ready to tell her, sorry, I don't have any permits. And then suddenly she said, she's awesome, and waved us on through. We didn't have to pay. She didn't ask us for permits. It was a beautiful day, and we'd had the, we had the windows rolled down. So all through the tunnel, we were yelling, whoa, we're, we're going to New York. We're on the island. Well, we, we come out on the other side. The windows open, and, and I look around, and there on the edifice of the tunnel, was um, scaffolding. A whole bunch of uh, construction workers were dotted all across. And, um, you know, I look up at them, and suddenly I see one of them. 
Hey, you guys, look it over there. And then another one. Oh, awesome broad. And then, mm, nice leg. And suddenly there was just, they were cat calls and whistles and, and yelling and thumbs up. And I thought, oh, great. Now my sculpture is just a focus of uh, testosterone-charged Brooklyn construction workers. Well, we kept on going, and now we are passing by Ground Zero. And I hadn't considered that I'm now invading a sacred place. 3,000 lives had been lost in this horrific attack. And here I was, how did I have the chutzpah to enter a city who had this beautiful Statue of Liberty so stately and graceful? And I was coming in with, with my Statue of Liberty with her legs flying high. And I just thought, oh gosh, God, what am I doing? Who do I think I am? Well, over the road was um, a, a viewing bridge that we were just about to pass under. And, and I looked up, so it was built so that people could gather and, and pay their respects for the lives that were lost. So I looked up there, and I was expecting to see jeers and sneers and get out of here. But instead, what I saw were people clapping, and they were cheering, and it was, it was double thumbs up. And I thought, oh, gosh, how did this happen? Well, so we kept on going to the, to the easternmost end of the island where Battery Park is. And I was hoping, okay, well, we're getting, we're getting close. Maybe we'll be able to just make a quick turn. And as we turn, we'll be able to see the Statue of Liberty from, from where we are across the bay. Um, there, was a, there was a bus lane open right there in front of Battery Park. And there was a whole long line of people all the way from where you get the ferry to the bus stop. And... And so we pulled up in, in front of the bus lane, and I quickly grabbed a, a, a handful of Liberty brochures, and I jumped out. I was just going to quickly go hand out a few brochures to the people who are bored waiting in line. But just as I jumped out, I was met by a big New York cop. And he goes, hey, lady, what do you think you're doing here? Well, I handed him a brochure, and I started talking really fast, you know, that 10-second elevator pitch. And uh, he looked at Liberty, looked at the RV, said, I'm sorry, ma'am, you can't park here. But you're welcome to go into the park and spend as long as you want right next to this line of people. So that's what we did. We were given what people from all over the world waited a year or more to have the privilege to park and then paid thousands of dollars. We had just been given the keys to New York City. And I thought, I mean, and then to top it off, he invited us to spend the night in the security lot. So now we got up the next day ready to depart. I thought this 
what is the highlight? I mean, what? it doesn't get better than this. We headed back through the tunnel, back over the bridge, following the directions that Frank gave me to, to get onto Ellis Island. And we entered Ellis Island, stopped by the security guards. We were asked to get out while uh, the guard dogs were sniffing all underneath the carriage, all around Liberty, and then they just waved us on through, and sure enough, we followed Frank's directions, and there out behind the historical buildings on Ellis Island was a mammoth forklift, a barge tied up to uh, the, a service boat that was waiting to pull me and Liberty out into New York Bay. Frank um, showed up, he welcomed me, and there the forklift was. We detached the trailer, so 18-foot trailer, four-foot steel uh, pedestal with eight-foot-tall bronze sculpture. This was a 4,000-pound unweldy load that this forklift lifted up, reached way out over the dock, and, and as it was and as it was lowering down onto the barge, it began tottering on two wheels, but, it, but the operator gingerly let, let her down. And then Frank invited me, said, would you like to ride with your liberty? And he escorted me onto the barge, and out we, out we floated. So there I was, bobbing, on a barge under the Statue of Liberty with my liberty, looking up at this graceful sculpture, lifting her torch into the sky. And I looked at my liberty, let's roll, and in comparison, she seemed like a grotesque representation of this beautiful lady. And. But here I was, and how did I get here? And there was a flood of memories. This was 3,500 miles that we had traveled, and all these memories conflicting were flooding into me. And I was just overwhelmed in that moment, thinking about how so many different people saw this sculpture that I made. Um, it inspired some people to party, other people to, to fall on their knees, others to, to kick up their legs, and then others to, to just be charged with their testosterone. And I, it just was so confusing, and yet I still, like Henry David Thoreau had said, I had kept advancing in the direction of a dream, and here I was. And I looked up into this beautiful blue sky, and overhead was an ABC News helicopter recording live this event. And I raised my hands and I said, God, who are you? Why am I here? How did this happen? So I headed back home to Boise. And for the next two years, I did two more tours. And um, 
people had, in 2010 then, um, she'd finished two tours, people kept asking me, so where's Liberty? What have you done with Liberty? Um, she had, after, you know, in 2010, after she had traveled her last mile of 21,000 miles, I um, had come to a place where I realized she was representing something that I didn't intend for her to be. be. And um, so five years ago, uh, Liberty traveled her last journey back to the foundry where she began. She had um, come to represent something that I had not intended for her to become. In fact, uh, there was a variety of, of people that had adopted this image. She had become um, a mascot for a roller derby team. She had become uh, an icon for um, a fundraiser for cancer survivors. She'd been invited to um, Burning Man and, and off to, invited to military bases and then shopping centers. And, and I realized oh, she has just, this image has just become another cheap marketing tool. So I had her melted down in the crucible where she had been born so that I could be set free to live a better dream imagined by the one who had formed me. And he said, Come on, Irene, let's go. Diane Dalton. I wasn't supposed to be next, so surprise. I was 27 years old and sitting in my doctor's office, just had my annual physical. We'd had a little chat about how I was doing, how my life was going. And he turned to me and said, so you must want to get pregnant. No, I don't want to get pregnant. As a matter of fact, I don't think I can have children, but I definitely don't want to get pregnant. He said, why don't you think you can get pregnant? You're healthy, you're young. Well, see, I was born in the 50s. I grew up in the 60s and hit my sexual peak in the 70s. And before the AIDS epidemic, it was kind of a wild and crazy time. Yes. Yay. <laughs> Birth control was kind of left up to the woman, which it still is, but there were a lot more options. So I couldn't take the pill. It made me sick. It makes a lot of people sick. I couldn't use condoms because I was allergic. But also, back then, if a woman carried condoms in her purse, they kind of labeled you. It wasn't like now. Everybody's kind of prepared. So I didn't really have anything, and I kind of flipped a coin every time. I was kind of taking a chance. 
And for seven years, nothing had happened. I wasn't pregnant. I did have sex. I wasn't pregnant. But my doctor said, you're in a committed relationship now, Diane. You're going to have sex more often. I know. And you might get pregnant. And if you don't want to have a baby, I would suggest that we do something different. See, what I was using then was the sponge. If anybody remembers that, it was made famous by Elaine on Seinfeld. It was a literal two-inch sponge that you inserted 10 minutes before sex, and it covered the cervix, and it was supposed to stop you from being pregnant, but only with about 70% effective. But it was working, so I didn't think anything of it. He said, that's not really safe. If you don't want to be pregnant, that's not the best thing to do. So I asked him, what do you want me to do? What should I do? And he brought in a little tiny piece of wire, smaller than a paperclip, and he said, this is a copper IUD. I think we should insert a copper IUD. It's 99.9% .9 effective. 99.9%, .9%, that sounds good. Although for seven years I haven't had a problem, that sounded good. I said, how does that work? Look, I'm using this sponge. <laughs> and you bring in that, how does that work? And he told me that um, sperm, the copper, is toxic to sperm, and I didn't know that. That's pretty interesting. So he said, come back in about a week and we'll insert the IUD. I came back in a week, and the first indication I had that I probably shouldn't take everything he said at face value was when he said, this is, might pinch a little bit, because after what felt like a monkey, with pliers putting a vice clamp on my uterus, I had an IUD. I probably, you know, at that time I should have questioned his judgment. Six months later, as a matter of fact, on Mother's Day, I'm at home, my mother comes to visit with my stepdad and I'm making dinner, making a lasagna. And I've been tired, um, feeling a little bloated, not feeling too good, but you know, nothing really that I felt could be wrong. I have irritable bowel, so I thought maybe it was that. Um, but right in the middle of making this lasagna, I had to go throw up. I came back out and said, no, it's okay. All right, maybe I got the flu. And I don't know, but mothers have some kind of sense. And she said, when was your last period? Well, one of the side effects of that IUD is it makes you very irregular. So I'm like, I don't know. But mom, 99.9%, .9%. you don't understand, I'm safe. Seven years and then 99.9%. .9%. But she was visiting and she's three hours away, so she said, would you mind if we went to the doctor tomorrow just to find out, just to put me at ease? Because you've always said you don't want children. And I thought, well, we'll go, just to make her happy, it's no big deal. Um, we went to the doctor, we sat in the office, I let them draw the blood. I kept telling her, don't worry about it. Mom, 99.9, .9. I'm telling you, the odds are on my side. So after about 10 minutes, the doctor opens the door, big old smile on his face. Congratulations, it's positive, you're pregnant. Mind you, he was from South Africa, and for about five seconds I thought, maybe that means something else <laughs> in South Africa. I don't know. So I said, and as I was in a fog, I heard words like six weeks and pregnant. Uh, oh, it means the same thing here. 
But in that instant, in that instant, I realized that I did want to have a baby, but I was using it as a mechanism. Because I didn't think I could have one, I kept saying, I don't want one. Because I didn't want to disappoint myself. I didn't want to be hurt. So in that instant, I was so excited, like, oh, wow, I can get pregnant. I'm having a baby. So then he said, but we have to discuss your options. You do have an IUD, and you have two options. The first option is we can remove the IUD. I'll send you to a specialist. He will use an ultrasound, and he can go in and pluck the IUD out. Unfortunately, when he does that, it tears a little hole, and you have about a 60% chance of a miscarriage. That was kind of depressing. What's my second option? Your second option is we can leave the IUD in. Why didn't you lead with that? That made sense, right? But Diane, there's a slim, slight possibility that if we leave the IUD in, that during the pregnancy, it will grow onto the baby. Most likely it will grow onto the baby's face or forehead, right, but you know, in, in the eye area. And when the baby's born, it will have to be taken in and have surgery immediately. Wow, those aren't really good options, because I'm excited. So how long do I have to think about this? I need to know right now, because the sooner we do this, Diane, the better. We need to get the IUD out or decide to leave it. I said, well, what are the odds that the IUD will grow on the baby's face? Like, you know, what's the chances? I've been playing with those odds for seven years. Well, he said, uh, it's about the same as the odds of you getting pregnant with an IUD. And I could see the look on his face when he said it, that he was like, oh, shit, I just had, I was like, yeah, that, you know, thanks a lot. So needless to say, I chose to have the IUD removed so that I didn't have to worry about that. So I went to a specialist, had the IUD removed. I was told I had to unfortunately lay on the couch for six weeks, try to rest, let my boyfriend do everything which was such a hardship. <laughs> so I, I lay on the couch and I relaxed and I waited for everything to heal. And when I went back to the doctor, they said, everything's okay. Now we just have to go through the pregnancy. I had a kind of pre uh, precarious pregnancy because I developed uh, diabetes. And for that reason, I had to have an ultrasound every month, which is not normal. So I went to the office every month and I saw the doctor every month. I also had RH factor, so just a lot of things happened. So I went to, uh, in the delivery room now. I'm in the delivery room, getting ready to have a baby. And there were a lot of nurses around. We're waiting for the doctor to come in. And the doctor walks up to me, and he holds my hand, and he says, Diane, you're getting ready. It's almost time. And all the nurses in the office want to know if they can come and watch. And I thought, well, is, is that, I don't know, is that normal? By the way, I was really nervous about coming here and talking to you about this, and then I realized that I actually lived this story with my feet in stirrups. <laughs> so you're not scary at all. Not scary at all. So 
Anyway, the nurses all came and they lined up on the wall and watched me give birth. And I really, I didn't know why, but in the end, one of the nurses came over after the child was born and held my hand and said, Diane, we really wanted to be here because after what happened, you were so excited and we saw you every month and you were so, so excited. But the doctor didn't give you much chance or much hope of carrying this baby for the whole time. For the first six months, he told us every time you came in, she has about a 40% chance of carrying that baby. So they wanted to come and watch the baby be born. And so the baby was born on February 13th. And if you would like to see what an IUD baby looks like without a scar, she's sitting right here. This is her. This is Amber. And if you'd like to hear what an IUD baby sounds like, she's, uh, she's part of a very, very successful Boise-based band called Sunblood Stories, and they'll be playing at Tree Fort Music Festival in March. This man has a story. Please welcome John Much. Back in uh, October of 1976, I went to the Western Idaho Fair flea market that they had fairly regularly on Saturdays. Was one of the first ones in line because I had some rivals who uh, searched there, through there at the same time I did. So I was pursuing the uh, various tables around and all of a sudden in a fellow's set up, I spotted this piece of brass. It was a little dark disc, but I immediately knew what it was. It was something I'd been after for over 10 years. <clears throat> so then came the next worry, did I have enough money in my pocket to make him part with it? And if I did spend all that money, uh, what would I hear when I got home? <laughs> well, fortunately, he had a $10 price tag on it, and I happened to have a $10 bill, and we changed, uh, exchanged the money for the token, and I took off with it, happy as a clam. As I said, I'd known about this and been looking for one for at least 10 years. I, I could see on it, <clears throat> even though it was dark, it said, Miners Brewery and Bakery, Idaho City, 1865, and it was good for 25 cents. Well, think back, if you can think back 100 and some odd years, which I can't, but um, Idaho City was one of the early ghost, or gold rush towns uh, in Idaho. It wasn't the earliest, but it was fairly early. A lot of miners, uh, after the California gold fields had played out, they heard about Idaho and came up here to get their fortune, and a lot of them did get their fortune. Well, among those people that came to Idaho City back then, actually it was a few years before uh, the 1865, it was in 1862, when Idaho City was actually called Bannock City, there was a fellow named Lewis Nauer, 
And he had been born in Europe, who was a, a brewer in Saxony, and he'd heard the stories of the fabulous California gold rush and decided to come to America and uh, make his fortune. But he was going to make his fortune in, in brewing beer. And of course, that's one of the necessities in a mining camp. Um, they actually had three necessities. Uh, something to eat, something to drink, and something to make merry with. So Lewis Nauer made his way to Sacramento, California, and set up a brewery, and he realized that he was actually on the tail end of the gold rush there, but he'd heard about the Idaho gold rush. So he packed up his goods and made it to Idaho City. And how you get to Idaho City from Sacramento? Well, you go down the river to San Francisco and you get a boat and you go to Portland and up the Columbia River to um, Umatilla. And then you go overland, by foot probably, um, up to uh, Idaho, which was then part of Washington Territory. And you go up either the Payette River drainage uh, past Horseshoe Bend up to Boise Basin, or you come to Boise City, which wasn't a city then, um, and make your way up uh, Morse Creek. He made his way to Idaho City, set up a brewery, which he advertised as the pioneer brewery in the basin, and he made a fortune, um, at least comparatively. Compared to the miners, he was doing pretty well. It was a, a lot easier work. Um, and he made some money. Well, typical of many of those early towns, uh, they were all made out of wood and a, and a hot stove would maybe catch something on fire and the town would burn down. That happened to him two times uh, before 1864. And each time he rebuilt and carried on. Well, in the th fire that happened late 1864, uh, he had learned, because the Civil War was raging at that time, back in the States, uh, that all the money was out of, out of circulation. Especially in a place like Idaho City, there was no money to be had. Uh, coins were hoarded, um, if in the East, they didn't even exist back out here. Paper money was not to be trusted. So how do you operate? How do you carry on a business? Well, instead of having a, a scale and weighing out a pinch of gold for a glass of beer, uh, which was a pretty awkward situation, he figured out that he could do like a lot of the Eastern merchants had done and have tokens made that were to be used in his business. They'd have his name on it and he could make change uh, that way. This token that I'd found was one of those. So why did I get interested in that? Well, I, I started out like a lot of boys, and this was mainly a boy hobby. I uh, collected pennies, copper pennies. Um, and when I would get some change or go through uh, uh, my parents' change drawer, uh, and swipe a penny or two, I could fill an album of, of pennies. About uh, 1958, when I was uh, 
fifth grade or so, my dad, who was a watermaster here in, in Boise, got a chance to become watermaster up at um, the Minidoka project up at Rupert. And so we packed up, uh, moved up there, and I went to the fifth grade in a little country school outside of Paul, Idaho, which is just barely a town. I mean, Idaho City, I think, is bigger than Paul, but um, I, f I couldn't advance my collection very much in that country school, but <clears throat> when I graduated out of grade school and went to junior high, it was in downtown Paul. And Paul had a bank at the time, and so at, at lunchtime, I could eat my, my sack lunch that my mother had prepared for me, and I could hustle myself uptown to the bank and uh, get a couple of rolls of pennies with my allowance money and go through them and find pennies to add to my collection. Well, that was great. I, I made some progress. I graduated from junior high and went to high school. Well, Minico High School, if you've been by there, it's out in the country. So that put the, the kibosh on my going uh, downtown to the bank. You couldn't go anywhere from the high school. But the saving grace was that the high school had a coin club. And I could, I could trade coins with the other guys that were in there. And every now and again, the advisor would buy a bag of $50 worth of pennies, bring them to a meeting, dump them out in the middle of the table, and we'd go through them looking for the coins we needed and replace them with uh, the ones we didn't need, and the advisor would have his money back. Sprinkled in among those copper pennies uh, at the time were a lot of zinc-coated steel pennies that really stuck out like a sore thumb. Uh, they were made during World War II when copper was um, a material that the, was used for defense, and there was a shortage of copper again then. So the solution that the government came up with was to make steel pennies, coat them with zinc, and then they would work. Well, that was just a one-year thing. After that, um, for a few years, they, they made the, the pennies out of recycled shell casings. Well, the, the coin club was great, but one day, a friend of mine that was in the club came in with a, a handful of, of things, and I, at the time, had no clue what they were, but they were trade tokens. <clears throat> and I don't know where he got them, but I, as soon as I saw them, I realized they had the name of a, a business and a town on them. Even my next door town of Rupert had one in there and, and Fairfield and Shoshone and Jerome and Twin Falls. And I thought, boy, this is neat. What are these things? And so I immediately uh, figured out a deal where I could trade this kid from those things. So, so I took them home and I showed them to my father who I thought knew everything, and he, he didn't have a clue, at least not that, that he told me. He was curious about them too, so he took them to work uh, the next day and showed them to the, the guys that worked for him. Well, the following day, a couple of those fellas brought in some tokens, gave them to my father, and gave them to me. Well, wow, all of a sudden here, I had a collection what it was, I had no clue, but I had a collection. 
Coincidentally, at the same time I read the, the big city newspaper for us, which was the Twin Falls Times News, and there was a fellow named Frank Shell who had written a, wrote a column in there about every month, uh, taking questions from his readers on coins. And about the same time, somebody had sent in some tokens to him, and he didn't know what they were. So he wrote a column about them, saying, does anybody else know what these things are? Well, of course, this was in the days before social media. And we started a, a correspondence writing real letters back and forth um, that lasted for another 20 years until he passed away. Well, he had discovered these tokens and, and got really interested in them. And while I was off at college, um, he was compiling from the information that he'd been given uh, a book of, of the Idaho tokens. And of course, in there, once I finally got the book, was a picture of this miner's brewery and bakery token. And it just happened to be the oldest token in the, in the um, whole book of Idaho tokens, of which there was probably two or three hundred. And I thought, my gosh, there's such a wealth of history in these things. So I got interested in doing more and more research into what, what they were, how they were used. They were used in pool halls, they were used in cigar stores, saloons, general stores, barber shops, all sorts of places had them. And there were all sorts of little towns that I'd never even heard of. Well, off at the University of Idaho I went, and they had a coin club there, too, and I joined it and uh, met up with a couple of other collectors who actually collected tokens. So here my universe had gotten expanded just immensely. <clears throat> After I graduated from college, there's not much demand for electrical engineers at the time in Boise, Idaho, where I wanted to live. So I ended up going to Dallas, Texas for a few years. After I flunked my uh, draft physical, um, I'd, I'd been working for a defense contractor, so I had an exemption, but uh, my draft board said I had to, had to go take my physical, and I took it and I flunked it. Uh, all of a sudden, my uh, thinking about living in, in Boise, Idaho changed, and uh, my sister told me that the telephone company was hiring. So uh, I met and married my wife there, and on our honeymoon, we uh, made time, and I interviewed with the telephone company here in Boise and got a job that 39 years later I retired from. I was fortunate to be able to stay here in Boise my whole career. One of the things I was able to do, again, on my noon hour is um, eat my lunch at my desk or uh, at a cafeteria and then hustle over to the um, State Library when it was on 4th and State Street and do some research into these tokens um, and then have time to get back before my noon hour was up. That, I did an awful lot of that and uh, was really thankful that I had that chance to do the research um, and, and uh, not take time from anything else. Well, as I mentioned, Frank Schill had, had written this book on Idaho tokens and by the time um, 
I had retired, he'd written a second edition of that, and there were probably another four or five hundred tokens from towns from Eastport, uh, up in North Idaho, clear down to Pegram in the southeast corner of the state, and everywhere in between were, were um, these tokens. But the one that stood out was this Miner's Brewery and Bakery, 1865. Then the Civil War people, uh, there were a lot of Civil War tokens, and the Civil War token collectors uh, did a lot of research on, on tokens, and they finally decided here within the past three or four years that this one from Idaho uh, should be considered a Civil War token. And it was the definition by, by their reckoning is a token um, that was used in place of money during the time of the Civil War. After doing further research, I found that Lewis Nauer's business had burned down in, in the last of 1864. He'd gotten it rebuilt and opened in April of 64, <clears throat> and then in May of, eight, I mean, I'm sorry, of April of 1865, and then in May of 1865, the Civil War was ended by the surrender of Lee at Appomattox. So by one month, Idaho got a Civil War token, <laughs> and it is the only Civil War token east of uh, either Minnesota or Missouri. Everything else is in the Northwest, so we Idaho token collectors are real proud of these. They're, they're, they're all uh, dark because they had gone through the fire that happened. And I don't believe many of them got into circulation. But that kind of research has been stuff that I've done now for, uh, I hesitate to say how many years. <laughs> but I really do appreciate you taxpayers um, paying <laughs> Paying for things like um, the Idaho History Library and the Boise Public Library, and now uh, the internet that makes it a lot easier to uh, research stuff like that. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Story Story Night receives support from the Boise Arts and History Department and is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise, our season sponsor, Pettit Realty Group, and the Copper Plus Zinc Equals Brass show sponsor, Cheeky Teo. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Our theme song was composed by Dan Costello, and our musical guest was the Boise Phil Brass Quintet. Support this storied program, get tickets to our live show, and stay tuned at www.storystorynight.org or on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Story Story Night. You can also donate by phone. Text FLAGSHIP to 41444. Thanks for being a part of our story. 